welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 37, recorded on August 27th, 2019. Google will shut down the Cloud Pod in 2027. Hey guys, how's it going? Morning. Going well. Good morning. Yeah, we're, we're recording in the morning, which is a little weird for us. That's uh, unusual. Uh, we uh, unfortunately don't have the British component of our podcast this week, so we have a substitute in the amazing Ryan Lucas. Hello. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, are always our go-to substitute, so we always appreciate you jumping in on last-minute notice. I just assume Jonathan doesn't do morning. Uh, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah, he definitely doesn't do mornings. Uh, he's, a, he's a night owl by trade, so... Well, we, uh, we don't have a lot of news this week, mostly because uh, VMworld sucked up all the oxygen. So we will uh, do a little bit of reprieve here and talk about VMworld a little bit, because uh, there was some cloud interesting stuff going on there. But let's uh, start out with uh, Oracle, our favorite friends, uh, the lawyer company that makes databases. So uh, Oracle has uh, filed a new appeal uh, over Pentagon's uh, $10 billion Jedi contract. Uh, of course, we expect this to happen after the last federal court decision. Uh, Oracle promised to appeal as expected. Uh, they said in a statement, The Court of Federal Claims opinion in the Jedi bid protest describes the Jedi procurement as unlawful, notwithstanding dismissal of the protest solely on the large legal technicality of Oracle's purported lack of standing. Federal procurement laws specifically bar a single award procurement such as Jedi absent satisfying specific mandatory requirements, and the court, in its opinion, clearly found DOD did not satisfy these requirements. Uh, from Oracle's general counsel, Dorian Daly, uh, in the statement. So uh, it's not over yet. The fat lady has not sung on Jedi, unfortunately. But uh, Oracle's going to go try to appeal the ruling, which said that they uh, they did not have any grounds to sue, based on the fact they did not technically meet the requirements of the bidding process. kind of feels like they're just trying to sue their cloud capabilities into existence. Well, I mean, they can delay and delay and delay. That's Jonathan's opinion, is that you know they'll just wait till they delay enough that they actually have it. And then they can say, well, we have all the things now. If they ended up pulling that off, I, I would congratulate them. That would be awesome. <laughs> it would be a, it would be an amazing uh, amazing turn of events for sure. Would be good strategy. It's true. Yeah. Well, well, if you are in the uh, virtualization space and you felt the gravitational pull of San Francisco this week as VMworld kicked off, uh, they announced a couple things before the uh, the VMworld started. So let's start there. Uh, Pivot, VMware has announced they're going to be purchasing Pivotal Software and Carbon Black. Uh, this acquisition is Pivotal for $2.7 billion and Carbon Black for $2.1 billion. Uh, for those of you who know, Pivotal is a maker of the Spring Framework as well as uh, Cloud Foundry and several other technologies for PaaS uh, offerings. And Carbon Black is a uh, modern AI-driven uh, antivirus program. Uh, both deals are expected to close sometime in January 2020. And uh, Chief Officer Pat Gelsinger had to say, these acquisitions address two critical technology priorities of all businesses today, building modern enterprise-grade applications and protecting enterprise workloads and clients. With these actions, we meaningfully accelerate our subscription and software as a services offerings and expand our ability to enable our customers' digital transformations. So that's uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, Cloud Foundry and Pivotal um, are pretty well known out there in the space, and, and technically Pivotal was majority owned by Dell EMC, which also majority owns VMware. <laughs> so it's a little bit of an interesting acquisition, but it does uh, help Dell's EMC's books uh, in the future here as they kind of make that financial transaction happen in the spring. Yeah, the first thing I thought when I, I saw this was, wow, they're throwing up the white flag on the infrastructure side and, and deciding to invest their money up the stack before... Uh, before it's too late. Yeah, I saw this news before I heard any of the 
uh, outcome of VMworld. And so I was like, well, what happened to Heptio? What, what, what are they doing? Like, yeah. so now, now it all kind of makes sense. But pretty yeah. crazy. It's a lot of money. Yeah. I just feel like they're they're trying to buy their way to revenue at this point. And they're, you know, what's next for VMware um, after after virtualization and private cloud is dead? What is their play? And I, I think this is a, a key part of that strategy. Anything they can do to fight, yeah. you know, do they pivot into being a, a Kubernetes player or do they pu- uh, pivot into being a, a security company? I think that's kind of their, <laughs> these are both bets right here in one acquisition announcement. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you no know, as a shareholder. Struggling yeah. to maintain and stay relevant in the space. Yeah, for sure. And as a shareholder, the last thing you want to see is uh, your your company be uh, not not have an open mind about where they're going. With their investments, yep, and they, you know, they in the article they mentioned the three growing trends that they think this acquisition will help them with. Uh, the first being multi-cloud is the new model for enterprise IT. Uh, second, digital transformation is driving accelerated pace of cloud-native app development. And last but not least, as businesses move applications to the cloud and access it over distributed networks, and from a diversity of endpoint security has become a significant challenge and priority. So. Uh, yeah, they're basically saying <laughs> we have to be dealing with multiple avenues of uh, attack at this point. Well, let's move right on to VMworld. Uh, so VMworld on Monday, they announced uh, several different things. Uh, the first one is Project Pacific, um, which is their biggest evolution of vSphere in a decade. Um, and this is all about turning uh, ESXi into being a, a first-class citizen for Kubernetes. Uh, so you'll be able to run your Kubernetes native workloads on top of ESXi uh, with using all your normal kubectl commands and kubectl. Uh, they also announced that you can now run VMware Cloud's version of ESXi uh, on Dell EMC hardware out of the box with all your licensing pre-installed. And then they announced uh, VMware Tanzu, which is Japanese for container, as a new portfolio of products and services to transform the way the world builds software on Kubernetes, which is really where Cloud Foundry is going to play into this mix, I think. And then they also announced some uh, uh, updates to their automation and operation suite be realized uh, to help major uh, reworks of cloud automation management and monitoring. So. Big, big announcements in the Kubernetes space as well as in the application modernization space on day one of VMworld. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this touted as, you know, as big to VMware as like vMotion was moving VMs around while, you know, maintaining state across from different hypervisors. I mean, it is a pretty crazy, you know, leap. Like this is is an announcement of a a proof of intention. Not really a whole lot of products are in the Tanzu suite just yet. But uh, if I mean, if they pull it off, it would be an amazing feat because this is a huge struggle for large large businesses to run Kubernetes at scale, and some of their announcements are pretty slick. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the Kubernetes space and you say what's the right solution for on-prem, I mean, other than Anthos, there really wasn't a good player. Oh, and I guess also OpenShift from IBM Red Hat, um, but you know, there really wasn't a good solution. And so, if VMworld, if VMware can you know simplify the whole system around Kubernetes, they can handle all the management of Kubernetes for you, provide it more as an infrastructure as a service, kind of like they did with with virtualization. I think they actually have a, a good chance of making this really resonate for a lot of enterprise companies trying to get to Kubernetes but have this large investment in VMware already. Um, I, I see this as a good move by their part and really the best move they had up their sleeve, I think, to really be competitive in a world where virtualization is dying. Yeah, how many businesses already have you know a team of people running VMware? Total sense. Yeah, right when I thought they threw up the white flag on infrastructure, boom. And then if they, you know, by putting in the Cloud Foundry platform as a service, why not a huge fan of platform as a service as a solution set? Um, I think it's interesting 
how it can tie into the ESXi and into Kubernetes and make that all simple. And what that means in Tanzu as it kind of builds out over the next year or two um, will be really interesting. So this is definitely an area to keep watching. We'll, uh, we'll report back here on the cloud pod as they continue to evolve um, this Kubernetes stack. They have been doing container management uh, for a while in ESXi, but not at the level of orchestration that Kubernetes is going to bring to the table for them. So net-net, I think this is a great announcement on their part. And where the rubber meets the road is really the big question. I mean, what they're basically saying this is going to look like from, you know, like an IT perspective would be you'd be able to manage an application as a whole, whether that's in containers and VMs or both or, you know, and, and visualize it from that say, where previously really you're managing Kubernetes clusters as these little islands, you know, so you're managing the health of the infrastructure and the identity. And so they're really trying to change how these things are managed from a operational standpoint. And that's really the advantage here while try, but you know at the same time they're maintaining the developer experience of just interacting with native kubernetes apis and so the developer world in theory is going to be a lot lot more you know able to rather than doing shadow it or standing up their own infrastructure because it can't move fast enough they can just adopt this platform and both sides are happy yeah, it's interesting because when you go into the further, the press release specifically around Tanzu and they talk about what it includes, um, you know, it's, it's several components today, including uh, Pivotal, which is the new acquisition, Bitnami, uh, their software ecosystem vendors and partners, uh, Kubernetes with Project Pacific and vSphere native Kubernetes, AppFocus Management, Dev and IT Ops Collaborations, VMware PKS, which is their managed uh, Kubernetes type thing for multi-cloud and multi-cluster infrastructure. Uh, global visibility of all Kubernetes clusters, operator control policy, and developer independence. Um, so overall, you know, like Tanzu is a really bold vision and direction that all this plays into, and really help does help them move the needle. So I'm I'm excited to see where it goes. I think it's gonna be interesting. Yeah. Well, then day two was a little a uh, little less uh, cloud friendly and a little bit more uh, VMware focused, uh, but they did announce updates to AppDefense and vSphere Platinum. Avi Networks has fully integrated there with VMware now, and now they have the new NSX Advanced Load Balancer, uh, NSX T.2.5, and NSX Intelligence uh, was announced. They announced uh, the new Magna technical preview for vSAN optimizations, and then the vRealize Network Insights 5.0 was announced, um, all to give you better visibility of all this infrastructure. And those are all very, very heavy VMware features. But um, as you look at VMware Cloud and using, you know, on AWS or on Azure, um, these capabilities, NSX and all that, it makes it much more easy to use just a VMware ecosystem versus trying to drop into, hey, I need an Amazon ALB and my VMware vSphere, and now I have to have two different accounts. You know, VMware can now kind of go back to you and say, no, no, just use our NSX load balancer. Don't, you know, you don't need Amazon stuff. They're just an infrastructure provider. We're actually providing the value on top of that. So it's interesting to see where they're kind of going, what they're trying to do here, where they're they're trying to commoditize the infrastructure that the hyperscalers are providing, and then give you all the tooling and everything in the NSX layer to really manage it effectively. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays since they're also looking to partner with those hyperscalers. Well, it's interesting because I think the hyperscalers are looking to partner with VMware as a as a super highway to the cloud and get all those get all those workloads off of uh, VMware. <laughs> off and of VMware is looking at how do we make them a commodity play and we become the, the operating system of the cloud. So I think it's, it's an interesting friction and tension that's going to exist between them um, as they continue to develop these features and what happens over the time will be really interesting. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. 
From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, Pat Gelsinger was interviewed by the Cube, uh, and the Cube, if you guys know, is uh, they go, they go to most of the big tech conferences and they do interviews with CEOs and founders and technologists. Um, so they spent some time with Pat. Um, there were some interesting things he had to say. Uh, this is all post the two keynote days. Um, he says Kubernetes isn't a VMware thing; it's an industry thing. I really see it as one of those key transition points in the industry. This is the biggest rearchitecture of the core platform in over a decade with Project Pacific. Um, he also talked about uh, a year or two from now, his his dream is VMware could be seen as the most developer and open source friendly company in the community, and that's the goal I'm on. Uh, and so that's really interesting. So he talked a lot about Bitcoin as well and his his regulation. You know, he doesn't really see Bitcoin as a great tool, but uh, he also talked about blockchain, uh, and they are partnering with Australian Securities Exchange and US-based blockchain company Digital Asset Holdings to bring blockchain solutions on top of VMware to the market. Uh, and overall, you know, he wants to get security is a big part of their play as well so interesting interview definitely something to check out if you're interested in what you know pat's kind of thoughts are from a more candid uh, interview style show uh, definitely a lot of interesting things that he he sees this larger vision for vmware which is really interesting in the bigger ecosystem yeah really i thought it was cool that he actually came out pretty strongly against bitcoin whether or not i agree with him um it's fun to hear ceos have an opinion on something instead of being politicians well his reasons for not liking it the first one was of course the amounts of energy it takes to calculate bitcoin and how that contributes to yep. global warming, which is interesting. And then a second concern was, you know, it's unregulated and primarily used for illegal and illicit purposes. Um, which that one, you know, every solution has illegal and illicit purposes first. I mean, <laughs> video streaming was all big in porn for a long time for a, a lot of reasons before it became mainstream. So, um, yep. Sometimes the illegal activities lead to the legal ones. Uh, and that's maybe what Bitcoin is at right now. But I, it's definitely interesting to see whether it kind of go with that long term. Yeah, for sure. Well, that, that kind of wraps up VMworld. Any other thoughts on uh, VMworld this week? Uh, I mean, it, it's not really a cloud, you know, specifically focused, but it is very cloud adjacent. So I thought we should cover it here. Um, I have more to say about, you know, uh, the, the Project Pacific and, and all of those things, but, you know, I don't want to bore everyone. <laughs> yeah, give us a little content and then maybe we'll just <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, I mean, it's it's more along the lines of just what what they're intending to do, which I find super crazy. You know, like like trying to figure out exactly. You know, like it was more of the the, the play on like what they're. You know, you've got this Amazon relationship with this VMware, where they're saying it's this big optimization to to migrate workloads into the cloud and into Amazon, but VMware is clearly making the play for the middle ground, um, where they're you know they think that most businesses are going are either are right now or are going to be. And so they're trying to enable more of a short-term play to get into AWS, well, which I'll go, without going into the the hyperscaler world, which is, I think, a very interesting threading of the needle of strategy. Well, and frankly, they they tried to go into the hyperscaler world and they failed. So they had, yeah, they had to come exactly. up with, they had to come up with a better play. <laughs> I guess that's true. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But I, I like this trend of kind of meeting both worlds, right? Because you're development software development has just gotten crazy fast over time and so like it shops and security like even some base infrastructure stuff like they can't really keep up with that speed like no one's keeping up with the velocity of kubernetes and so 
IT shops who are traditionally, you know, used to a slower speed of just managing hardware are now trying to keep up, keep up with these, you know, API actions for interacting with uh, not just containers, but, you know, pod services or just the hardware at all. If you're starting to do like something like, yeah, OpenStack or OpenShift, you know, like it's, it is pretty crazy how fast these things move and IT shops aren't keeping up. And so I like this trend for companies coming in and solving and filling that gap where they introduce things like policy management, permissions management. We can gate people to quotas and, and sort of, well, not, not offering up protections to keep them from falling off a cliff, like providing, you know, basically systems that development can work with and understand what the right way to do things. And so like, if I like that, if we keep, you know, the right thing to do, the easy thing to do, you know, developers are naturally going to follow that path. And so this, I feel, is really a big move in that direction. It's interesting. I saw in one of these articles that um, VMware is the number three uh, corporate contributor to Kubernetes today, um, which is kind of shocking to me that they'd be investing that much into Kubernetes. But, you know, it definitely shows that they see that as a future. And it'd be interesting to see how the overall Kubernetes community feels about VMware coming into it and trying to, you know, smooth over those rough edges. Because there's a lot of people in the Kubernetes space who are, you know, they like the flexibility of choice. They like the ability that they can do anything. And VMware is going to have a very opinionated perspective on how they want to implement Kubernetes to fit well into ESXi. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that gets rationalized in the community over time. Uh, but I think potentially it's the right move because I think those rough edges are what kind of kill a lot of companies' Kubernetes ambitions. And so we'll, it'll be curious to see how that shakes out long term and what the end result is. But uh, definitely exciting times uh, for what VMware is going to try to do here. I don't think it kills the movement within companies. What I think it does is kill the official plans because what happens is you end up with these companies that, you know, there's a developer or a group of developers that have built their own Kubernetes clusters and sort of just running it out there. And so a lot of that times that stuff gets moved into production because of a lack of knowledge. And so hopefully this this addresses some of that. You know, I don't know how many shops I've seen or how many places I've been where the Kubernetes API actions are completely unmitigated. Uh, you know, so it's basically a single access point or a shared password for the entire cluster. And because these things are hard to maintain and hard to uh, operate, there's usually a single cluster that everyone's using. And so it's very easy for secrets to, to flow across namespaces or flow across environments. And it's, it, you know, it's the wild, wild west in a lot of places. And so it's, it's kind of scary um, when you see it behind the scenes and get to know how the sausage is made. And then you just look at, like, I don't want to run a data center ever again, but uh, we look at issues around, like, uh, cloud providers, uh, sunsetting and end of lifing specific API um, capabilities or features, and you know companies have zero control of, other than arguing their case with the with the provider to um, you know do make that transition on their own timeline. And so there is something to be said about uh, you know certain workloads you you want that control, um, but you still want all of the self service and automation that comes with cloud. I could see this making private cloud a lot more, um, uh, a, a better argument that uh, IT companies are going to make to keep stuff in-house. Yeah. yeah, especially if they've already made the investment in hardware. I don't know. I, I still think that the day and time of private cloud for majority of workloads is still kind of over. Um, you know, so always be specialized needs, and this will help with those specialized needs. You know, kind of give you that single experience between both your cloud provider and potentially your on-prem provider to make it easier to move back and forth between the two. But I don't know. I, I feel like the days of 
I'm going to spin up a data center to do my one workload is really kind of over, unless it's very specific um, security or compliance need that can't go to the cloud. Time will tell. That's yep. why we have a podcast uh, betting on the cloud side. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the on-prem pod coming soon. <laughs> exactly. You guys going to do spinoffs? That'd be great. <laughs> All right. Well, moving right along to uh, AWS news. Uh, everyone else is kind of quiet this week, as I mentioned, so uh, there's not a lot here. But uh, Amazon Forecast is uh, now generally available. Uh, getting accurate time series forecasts from historical data is not always an easy task. And so at reInvent last year, of course, AWS uh, or Amazon announced Forecast, a fully managed service that requires zero machine learning experience to deliver highly accurate forecast. Uh, this is now GA, and all you need to do is provide your historical data in a bucket or in some other format that it can use. Uh, and any additional metadata that you want to do, and just click it, and it'll make you pretty forecasts about all, hopefully, for how your AWS spends are going to go, if you're using it for AWS spend. But uh, <laughs> lots of different opportunities for forecasts to uh, help you out if you're doing time series data forecasting, like revenue and cost, et cetera. That should have been enlightening round. It could have been. Yes, it should have been. It would have been great. I'm... I'm incredibly frustrated that I don't have a use case to try this out on. So all I can think of is that that lemonade stand game. And so I think I'm about to spend like a stupid amount of time get like making up historical weather data so that I can forecast. Well, luckily the uh, the game. NOAA, the uh, National or you know Oceanic Association, they have all their weather data available to you as public data sets that you can go grab. Oh, you don't no. even have to you don't this... have to make it up. You can go get the real data. Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. I am going to sell so much virtual lemonade. <laughs> Very nice. Or, you know, the football season's starting up. We can always see if we can uh, predict some winners. There you go. <laughs> Let's put some, put some ponies, uh, or put, bet on some ponies down at the Vegas. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, moving on, uh, they've introduced new AI-powered health data masking, uh, which now allows you to mask healthcare data uh, programmatically with machine learning and uses Amazon API Gateway, Comprehend Medical to detect health data, and recognition to identify text in an image, uh, and then obfuscate it with that AI. Uh, it's not guaranteed to align with the regulatory framework yet, so this is not a solution for your HIPAA high-tech uh, use cases yet, but I'm assuming it's going to be heading that direction as they get more experience with it. Um, and it is designed to be set as implemented as a set of mitigating controls uh, in case your primary controls do fail. Uh, but this is something I wish they had announced at uh, Reinforce, because <laughs> it's something I, I wanted uh, yeah. uh, them to announce with something around you know data loss prevention and automatic data loss uh, detection, uh, which is kind of this is right in that, that wheelhouse. So glad to see it finally show up just a few months later than I needed it to for the, for the, uh, <laughs> the predictions. It definitely feels like a, a miss, right, in the development cycle where they're trying to get it out by Reinforce and just didn't get there in time. Yep. Yeah, I mean, miss obviously the the huge win is going to be when you can turn this on and no longer worry about um, uh, your uh, data privacy laws. Until then, though, I'm imagining you will be able to report on what it has found and masked. So it could be today used sort of as an audit tool against your existing process. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what they're they're meaning by it. it's not a regulatory control, but it's a mitigating control that you can use it to validate that your main controls worked and functioned, and that's a proof point for that, which is great. And then if you do have something slip through, it detects that, and you can then resolve it proactively, um, which is the right thing to do until they get you know more experience with this and, and develop this out further. But um, yeah, it's a great step in the right direction and something that I was hoping to see at Reinforce. Uh, Amazon SageMaker has now uh, given you the capability to use spot instances to do spot training. Uh, this will reduce your training budget by up to 90%. 
Uh, previously, if you wanted to do training for SageMaker, you had to use uh, on-demand instances, of course, and everyone knows that spot instances are significantly less expensive. Uh, these new instances uh, can save you up to 90%, as I mentioned. Uh, it does support all instance types, algorithms, built-in frameworks, and custom models. Uh, and it's as simple as switching it on in the console or using the SageMaker SDK to just set it to true in the estimator construct uh, command line tool. And then manage spot instances may be reclaimed at any time, of course, and SageMaker will handle the process of interrupting the job, restarting, and resuming the training job. So as long as your job can do uh, stop and starts, uh, then this is a really great option for you. Uh, they do recommend you leverage checkpointing to avoid uh, restarting your entire data set when the spot market price fluctuates. Uh, and this will just make your overall spot market prices more expensive, but for the right reasons, because people are using it correctly. Yeah, this is a fantastic announcement for anyone who's done, you know, machine learning or, or managing the, the infrastructure underneath it and, and then worried about the cost because it always is these, you know, these short-term jobs, but they, they'll run for, you know, days at a time and rack up, you know, huge spiky bills at these, you know, because you're usually using a beefy instance type to process these data sets. And so it's it's really hard to control costs when you're and get all the benefits of machine learning. And so this is this is great. This will bite into a lot of companies as they uh, a lot of this is built into some of the products off the shelf that you could spend money on. So it is sort of interesting. I'm sure the percentage of SageMaker jobs is super low as far as the total uh, capacity at Amazon. But as it grows and as other managed services that automate the process of using spot grows, it, I just want to watch the trend of uh, um, on-demand price versus uh, spot price continue to narrow as it gets super easy to use. It's interesting to see what happens to the spot market over time. And, you know, if it isn't saving people 60, 70, 80% anymore because the spot market's much closer to the on-demand market, um, it'll be interesting to see if that sort of changes, you know, starts changing the economic model in some ways again, or if that starts forcing more cost reductions in EC2, which would be super nice too. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, Amazon's goal, of course, is to get high utilization of all their hardware assets. And so... That's why they built Spot, and that's why they're doing Spot instances. So we'll see where that goes long term. Uh, Amazon Systems Manager Parameter Store has announced a new intelligent tiering capability to enable automatic parameter tier selection. Uh, so of course, if you are uh, familiar with how Parameter Store works, uh, there's a standard tier that lets you store up to 10,000 parameters at 4 kilobytes per parameter in value size, while the advanced tier allows you to store up to 100,000 parameters in an 8 kilobyte parameter store. Uh, and allows you to add additional policies to those parameters. Um, so now with the new intelligent tiering, uh, Parameter Store automatically tier selects based on the capabilities requested in create or update requests, enabling a non-disruptive way to use advanced tier capabilities. Uh, for example, with intelligent tiering setting enable, if your account exceeds 10,000 standard parameters, subsequent parameters will be created as advanced parameters, eliminating the need for you to change your application code. When I was reading through this article, I was a little confused why you would need this, and then when I realized your application code had to be changed, uh, this does make that much, yeah. much easier. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hate more about this service. I don't like the way it was announced. I don't like how it was integrated with Systems Manager. And now it's even more complex with having multiple tiers of pricing. It's so frustrating. You, I get that Amazon wants to figure out how to charge for these services and, and pay, per, you know, pay per use. But now it's, it feels like one of those things that you're only going to realize that you need to delve into this complexity when you get this huge bill. And you're trying to figure out why you spent so much money and you realize that you're, you know, dumping a ton of useless parameters somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is before, at least you would, you'd cap out, you know, cause you, you wouldn't be able to create more and now it'll just automatically allow you to create more and create more of a bill. 
So that's kind yeah. of a negative. But um, I, you know, I'm still perplexed about what they're really their intent of parameters are versus secrets manager and do we really need both services uh it's just kind of a kind of a mess yeah i mean and in a lot of ways a parameters to key value so like you know like if you think about dynamo db tables like this is sort of eaten in that space too and so it's sort of it is very confusing like why would i use this versus that um in a lot of ways and i really wish there was a clear story what problem this is solving for me this has sort of always been amazon's way though they always have multiple services that overlap in potential use cases and sort of let the customers figure out which ones they're going to use and why they're going to use them. And some will hang around and not have much use and other ones will take off and get tons of support from their customer base. And then probably I would imagine on the back end, tons of extra focus as far as R&D dollars go. I haven't met anybody who's actually using Parameter Store in a big way. So it'd be cool to meet one of those people. And if you're out there on in the podcast and want to come in and talk about how you love Parameter Store and what you use it for, I'd love to hear some use cases. <laughs> <laughs> so do uh, do send me an email at uh, justin at thecloudpod.net and I will uh, nice. I will eagerly uh, respond back to you and get you on the show to talk about it. Because uh, I, I, I have some use cases and some things that we use it for, but I mean ours are basic use cases. I'd, I'd love to know a more advanced use case. Moving on to Google News. Uh, Google has introduced the new Cloud Run button. Uh, this is a click to deploy uh, for your Git repos directly to the Google Cloud using uh, Cloud Run. This Cloud Run button works with any repo that has a Docker file or that can be built using cloud-native build packs. Uh, when you click the button, it packages the app source code as a container image, pushes it to Google Container Registry, and deploys it into Cloud Run, all with a single click of the button. So this is a great way if you're using open source uh, software that you want to be able to make easy for your customers to deploy or users to deploy uh, on Lambda or Cloud Run or anything like that. This is a great way to do it for Google uh, specifically. This has already existed for Lambda for quite a while. Um, I do believe it also exists for Azure Functions. So this is a nice uh, Me Too feature, but really powerful if you're trying to do something with open source and getting wide adoption of your product. It's a huge advantage, you know, when searching for open source software. If there's there's if there's an easy button for testing something out, um, you know, it's it's makes me far more likely to use something and actually dig into how it works. And then if I do decide that this is the right solution, reverse engineering how that easy button works, you know, it's one of those things where I've done that a few times where I remember when CloudFormation had, you know, create stack buttons, figuring out how that worked, reverse engineering that, like I said, it got me into using CloudFormation. And so, you know, I can see how this is a huge advantage for any cloud provider of like, yeah, come to our cloud, first one's free. You know what the uh, the anti pattern of this is though is the the run on Heroku button. <laughs> you know, make it make it super easy to get there, and that means that lots more people can uh, can get those workloads spun up. A lot of people who maybe have no idea what they're doing, which the other end of that would be that uh, seems like a great way to potentially uh, get some free uh, Bitcoin miners out there <laughs> and other good uh, other other not so uh, ethical uses, get people who don't know that they should probably know what's in their source code before they run it in their account. Well, any time that, you know, I, I download code from an open source project and, you know, you're just going to blindly go build it on your machine, I, I question your thought process. <laughs> unless, you, yeah. unless you really know the audience who wrote that code and what they did with it. Um, or even any Docker file, really, is kind of in that same boat. Of, you know, using a public Docker image on the Docker Hub um, you really need to kind of look at what's inside of that because, yeah, you can hide all kinds of things inside a Docker container in the different layers that could burn you from a security perspective um, or a Bitcoin mining perspective or whatever else. So, uh, you know, anytime you see these buttons, uh, do do the due diligence required before just go blindly running it into your production account. 
because uh, you don't want to give uh, hackers uh, unnecessary access to your system. <laughs> so, and a lot yeah. of these have you know very wide permission sets and very permissive things because they're trying to make it easy, and that easiness comes with you know laziness, in particular in security requirements. And so, just be careful. Uh, Google Cloud Text to Speech has expanded its number of voices by nearly 70%, now covering 33 languages. The 12 new languages include Czech, English, uh, Indian, flavor, Filipino, Finnish, Greek. Hindi, Hungarian, Indonesian, Mandarin, Chinese, Modern Standard Arabic, Norwegian, and Vietnamese. And 76 of the new voices include the 38 uh, WaveNet neural net powered voices, uh, which are pretty impressive as well. Uh, this brings a broad set of use cases, including contact center, AI, virtual agents, interacting with IoT devices or chat rooms, etc. Uh, Google Cloud text-to-speech, of course, runs on Google's Tensor Processing Units, or TPUs, uh, which are custom silicon chips that were designed to accelerate machine learning and AI. So if you're doing a lot of stuff with uh, natural text-to-speech um, or vice versa, uh, check out Google's uh, entries here. They have quite a, quite a wide selection of uh, capabilities for you. I got nothing. I know. Greek, <laughs> hey. I'm excited. I do, I do like English with an Indian okay. accent, though. That's a nice, nice one because that's a... That one can be tough at times. Uh, so we have a, a story here that's a little bit not exactly cloud-related, but this is an interesting conversation just in general about Google. So uh, Google has announced they will shut down Google Hire uh, in 2020. Uh, Google Hire was an ATS system for small to medium businesses that paid you know between $200 and $400 uh, per recruiter per year. Uh, and this was basically for them to be able to post job postings, uh, you know, find candidates, source candidates, uh, schedule interviews, etc. Apparently, sales teams were very aggressively selling this as little as six months ago uh, and putting customers into multi-year deals. Uh, so this is coming as a very negative uh, experience for the internet and for customers who are using this product. Uh, of course, the higher product came into existence after Google acquired Bebop, uh, which was a company founded by Diane Green after she left VMware for $380 million in 2016. Uh, they had a statement in here, while Hire has been successful, we're focusing our resources on other products in the Google Cloud portfolio. We are deeply grateful to our customers, as well as the champions and advocates for who have joined and supported us along the way. So this is one of the big areas that Google gets a lot of beef for. You know, Amazon gets a lot of beef for, you know, not being the right partner for retailers because they compete with most retailers. Azure gets kind of that, you know, they're not friendly to Linux knock. The Google knock is really this one. There's no guarantee they won't kill the product or service that you're building on at any time and leave you kind of hanging out to dry. And so this is just you know one more example that people now point to, including things like Google Reader, Google Health, etc., where they've built a product, gotten adoption of a product, and then said, you know what, it doesn't make enough revenue, so we're just going to kill it. Uh, and so that's really an unfortunate thing. But what do you guys think about this one? I just feel for any poor person who was you know part of that the acquisition team to bring this into their company and set up a process around using this for all of their you know talent management and then it just gets shut down underneath them like how are you supposed to adopt the next product after that right it's going to be a huge black eye for whoever that person is in their company i think this is just in general the risk of going SaaS with anything is that you don't have that control you don't have the control over um versioning and and when features get upgraded necessarily you know sure you can say you know oh i I'm picking a company that has that isn't going to go out of business. Google's not going to go out of business. I'm fine. They'll, they'll be fine. And then you know they still might decide that it's not worth it for them to keep running it. And now you're on their timeline, not your timeline, to make a transition. And I, I think in that article, uh, there's a link to a website where you can see all of the other things Google shut down. It's like 175 services uh, to date, all paid for by Google AdWords. You know, try it. If it doesn't work, you can just shut it down and keep trying other things. 
from Google's standpoint, I get it. But yeah, that's brutal. You know, always in kind of their culture of, you know, your your 20% time, you go build little side projects, you do things, Google Plus, etc. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a danger and it's a risk, right? Where you look at, you know, Amazon and Azure, and they've definitely deprecated APIs that have caused some breaking changes here and there. But the functionality that the API supported is still there. It's just that you had to go change your product to change, you know, to adopt the new API uh, properly, where this is just a product that's not existing anywhere. Like, what what happens when, you know, if Anthos isn't a popular product and Google, you know, decides, look, we're going to kill that product, you know, the amount of noise that will happen in the Google Cloud ecosystem because of something like that would be dramatic. And even yeah. in the products that, Google, you know, Amazon isn't really big about anymore, like SimpleDB, they still exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's still... I was just pulling up that website when you... <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, so SimpleDB is still there. You know, they don't talk about it on stage ever. It's not part of any of their slideware anywhere. But if you're a customer who's using SimpleDB, you know that product is still there and will continue to be there for at least the next couple of years. They haven't announced they're going to kill it yet. So who knows if they ever will. And I'm sure they've talked to the customers who use it in a big way. I'm sure they've had conversations. And for whatever reason, you know, Amazon's like, we're not going to kill this product because that customer needs it. That's the right customer attitude and listening to your customers that you want to see in a cloud provider. Where, you know, if Google's all about driving revenue, I mean, even how they said that it was successful, but it just wasn't successful enough, is even more dangerous because that means that anything is on the game to be killed at any time. That's just a terrible message to send uh, to the market and to the community as a whole, especially if you're trying to get your Google Cloud uh, to be the first choice of many, many companies. One year notice to get off an entire platform. Getting off a platform like an ATS is not easy. Because you typically have to have it integrated with your financial system. You have you have you know your website that hosts your job postings. I mean, these are small and medium companies, so I imagine they're not quite as bad as like a large enterprise would be getting off a platform like this. But I still imagine it's you know six months of work for most companies to go vendor select, negotiate pricing. Uh, they're not getting a refund for this, by the way. They're just getting you know it continues to work for the next year. So if you paid a two-year prepay contract, you're not getting money back to go pay for your next system. Uh, there's just a lot here that I'm, I'm not really sure they understand the implications of. Wow. I mean, I, I didn't know that they were not refunding like those contracts because that just seems like ripe for lawsuits and litigation. Like, how is that not? I think their answer is, you know, they're they're keeping the service running until September 1st, 2020. That's what you paid for. Um, I imagine if you're I mean, I haven't seen even say that they had contracts that went beyond that point in time. So I don't, I don't know if it's just they didn't have long term contracts or what, but. Um, yeah, a couple of articles I saw was that there was no refunds being offered. Uh, they will stop billing you though. So if you if you are on the platform today, um, you didn't prepay. You won't you won't get billed anymore from now until it sunsets. Uh, so now you get it for free. But if you prepaid, it sounds like you don't get that opportunity. So that's really unfortunate. All right. Well, yeah. So that's that's a big one. I, I it's one area that Google really started thinking about what the optics are of killing these products are and. You know, maybe you don't announce products quite as quickly as you used to because you don't know if it's going to be successful in the market. But you make that really clear up front that this is this is an experimental product. It's not a real product <laughs> until we say so, and, and don't make your business on it. Yeah, like Terraform. <laughs> <laughs> Zero dot twelve. Exactly. <laughs> Moving on to Azure, they are now putting into preview a new custom content uh, for Azure policy guest configurations. Uh, guest configurations, which uh, audit settings inside Linux and Windows VMs, is now ready for customers to author and publish content. Uh, tooling published to the PowerShell gallery can be used to author, test, and publish their content packages. And so, for example, if you are running an application on Azure Virtual Machine that was developed by your organization, you can audit the configurations of that application in Azure and be notified when one of the VMs in your fleet is not compliant with what you're expecting. So this is kind of a nice drift management type capability. Uh, and this is now available for you in preview starting today. Still trying to wrap my head around what this is. Is it a 
uh, application publisher, or is it just uh, you know like a config management like? It's checker. a config management checker. Yeah. It allows you to audit. Now you can write your own. Yeah, you can write your own custom policies for Azure, and then when it runs on the guest, it says yes, this is in compliance with what your requirements are for this application or not. That makes sense. I mean, that's yeah. yeah I can see that that being. I mean, other cloud providers have this, so it is something that can be useful, especially if you're you know working in an environment that has you know compliance controls or or tight configuration standards. Yeah. In order to get things. I mean, it, it continues the long the long well held tradition of Google Azure or of Azure, where the naming of their products doesn't make any sense to what the actual thing does. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Azure this week has also uh, announced 31 new Azure Edge sites. They're saying latency is the new currency of the cloud with this announcement. Uh, these 31 new regions will bring the global total to 150, as well as 14 new Meet Me sites for Azure Express Route. Uh, and Microsoft continues to provide the fastest and most accessible global network uh, per Azure. Uh, I don't know if that's independently audited or verified, but that's what Azure says about it. Hey, as long as as long as somebody doesn't, uh, as long as nobody else cares, just say it. It seems like I mean, it seems like they're you like to see that this kind of commitment in your cloud provider that they're just going full steam ahead. Gives you some confidence to build with them. Yeah, for sure. Oracle's building data centers at the same pace. Do you feel confident in them? <laughs> well, I would have to first be able to actually run a workload on the platform. So I'm going to go with no on that Still one. Still waiting to meet that first Oracle customer. <laughs> I, I think I got accepted to go to um, Oracle World as a as a media person you know as a press so I, I might be able to tell you if i meet one. Oh, this would be fantastic yeah. do report back I, I will all right well that's it for new news this week uh peter you want to take us to the lightning round i would be happy to so for scoring purposes do we have a virtual jonathan or do we have a guest in ryan oh uh, we just have a guest jonathan gets no points this all week right. which was which is points. how he would have resolved <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Amazon Transcribe now supports Mandarin and Russian. So all of my like '80s villain movies, I can now get you know all that dialogue written out. Excellent. Nice. I'm still waiting for Klingon to help me with uh, the Star Trek. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I want Klingon. Support for Windows Shadow Copies is now extended to all Amazon FSX file systems. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Shadow copies are, are problematic and awesome all at the same time. So I'm glad they're supported. But it seems like a, when they announced shadow copies two weeks ago, that this would have just been part of that announcement. But, you know, hey, double dipping on the announcements, sure. Amazon SQS now supports tag on create. Thank God. <laughs> like, the fact that you have to, you know, you even see it in Terraform where, you know, the logic has to be separated into two different segments and it's two different applies, all because you can't, you can't create an object and apply tags to it until the object exists. So thank God that this is starting to become a thing because I am. There are a lot of API actions that are kind of like double API actions because you can't do it at the same time. Yeah, when your templates start, you know, growing in hundreds of hundreds of lines just because of these strange, you know, mechanizations you have to do to get to get everything working. It is pretty funny. Just support it out of the box. Is it that hard? Apparently, it is. <laughs> yeah, the, the track record says that it's very difficult to support tagging. <laughs> <laughs> I think after all this time that. AWS would have that as a framework, right? Like, oh, you're building a product. Here's a here's a pre-built SDK that'll support you know provide tagging support to you. I don't think they're all that big on like common frameworks. If you look at the amount of standardization across different products, it's, it's everywhere. So like, clearly, they just let their their two pizza teams just go off in silos and be like, all right, report back with stuff. Then <laughs> they do. They report back with a lot of stuff. Those they teams. do. <laughs> all right, AWS Data Sync can now transfer data to and from SMB file shares. Of all the places you would want to transfer data to and from, an SMB file share seems like day one type feature, doesn't it? I, yeah. Y- yeah. I mean, if I have a traditional workload, this is what I want. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot of enterprises that are using NFS for their file shares internally, so it's a little, uh, little interesting that <laughs> this was on a mission before till now. Amazon Elastic Cache now supports up to 50 characters in the cluster name. Super descriptive cl- cluster names, right? Super descriptive. Yeah, well, I just like it because now you know the marketing team has a tough time finding the Elastic Cache cluster, and so this way we can make it really easy for them. So this to... will be your cluster name will be marketing. This is your Elastic Cache cluster. Yes. <laughs> See, look over here, dummy. Dot elasticash. Dot aws. Dot amazon. Dot com. Amazon SageMaker now works with Amazon FSX for Luster and Amazon EFS, accelerating and simplifying model training. Again, SageMaker, great product, does modeling, does all this data training off a data set. I thought this was part of the feature set day one <laughs> that it would at least support EFS. I think they had to put this in there for that spot thing, right? Like sure. If you have all your clusters reporting to like an EFS or a shared file system, then it makes it a lot easier for that machine to just go away randomly. Oh, lovely. That was a super short lightning round. Uh, Justin's uh, punch count was way up there. Good job, yeah. Justin. <laughs> Again, I can't compete. I just can't compete. It's tough. It's tough. He's good. He's yeah. consistently good. I try. I try. I mean, it, it helps that I, I have a lot of snark in my background and sarcasm <laughs> that I go. live by on a daily basis. So. <laughs> I think my next guest spot, I'm going to hire a team of writers. Just for yeah, there point. you go. That'd be awesome. <laughs> you can you can uh, group, uh, you know, send out tweets about it in advance. Like I need I need funny things to say about these. Yeah, yeah maybe right. or maybe you can pay maybe you can pay Corey to give you give you a hand with the the writing. Oh, I like open sourcing it. We oh. should do that. We should pre-release. The lightning round, <laughs> and then see who wins the 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 world or uh, maybe maybe people could submit you house. know if they have a better quip than we came up with maybe people can uh, submit those to us on the Twitter. yeah afterwards submit them to us on the Twitter feed and we'll we'll give out uh, awards for the best that's a great idea best, you know beat the hosts uh, quip I like awesome. it. cool. All right, guys. Well, that's uh, that's another fantastic week here at the Cloud Pod. I have seen next week's gonna be busy, uh, and I think. Ryan, we're going to have you back next week because uh, there's an announcement that you're super excited about. So we'll have you. I think yeah. we are, yeah. So uh, we will awesome. see you guys all next week here on the Cloud Pod, and we will talk to you then. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the Cloud Pod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions. Mm-hmm.